You're listening to highlights from the Creative Processes interview with Academy Award-winning director, producer, and writer Edward Zwick. This podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. You know, the, the title being Hits, Flops, and Other Illusions, it's based on a, something that, that Preston Sturgis once said. And I think I'm as interested in the flops as I am in the hits, because there's something about failure that is especially interesting. I think in success, we are essentially mystified. Things have aligned in such a way as to be felicitous. But in failure, you submit yourself to a real introspective process. But in any case, I'm talking about shame. And I said, shame is a heartless beast. It hounds you when you are most vulnerable, taunts you with ancient versions of yourself as a child, the gawky adolescent, the young schoolboy. I found these words in a notebook from my first time in movie jail. The appalling spectacle of my father, drunk and belligerent, berating a waiter in a restaurant or sitting by a curb after cracking up his car and claiming it wasn't his fault. Shame is always there when I sit down to write, clucking, chuckling derisively, or standing behind me on the set, its hand on my shoulder, just waiting for any sign of weakness as its cue to pounce. As hard as it is to break into show business, it's just as hard to stay relevant. It's never a question of if you're going to get knocked down, but when, and most of all, how long it takes you to get up. The best hitters in baseball have lifetime batting averages below 333. That means they've, the key to hitting is to forget your previous bat. Easier said than done. But I had the most serendipitous thing happen, which was to say I met Woody Allen walking down the street and did something that I would never do before, which is I walked up and introduced myself. And I think he was so happy to hear someone speak in English because he spoke no French at all. And also I had a legitimate entree to him because I had written for a magazine in the United States that had corresponded with him about some of his occasional pieces. In any case, he was very kind. And I said, could I possibly come by the set sometime? And he said, oh, sure, just call me at the Georges Sank. And I thought, oh, well, he's just blowing me off, but he's being polite about it. But I did call him the next day. He said, oh, come on by. And I came by and he said, well, if you want to hang out, that's fine. We might have some work for you to do. And thus began my film life. Obviously, the AI conundrum is one we're talking about because it does take from everything else and presume to create a thing itself. But that's what all artists do. All artists do look at tropes from the past. They do assimilate a lot that has gone before them, as the great painters always did and before they took on some new course. But the difference is that committee that you speak of. I think it's very much legacy of Silicon Valley, where the creation of teams was to try to build consensus among a homogenous group of people. And the building of consensus, I think, necessarily takes the edges off any kind of unique creative idea. And particularly, it may not be true when it comes to hardware, because you're creating new technology. But when it comes to story, this idea of being pleasing and pleasing everyone, I think is a terrible and slippery slope. Because if you're not pissing somebody off at any moment, you're doing something wrong. And the idea that you have to just cater to this kind of middle ground for everyone, I think there's real danger there. Marshall, when I met him, was in some way much more fully formed, I think, than I was as a creative artist. He had a point of view. He had certain very visible skills, but there were also certain personal inhibitions that he had that I think maybe held him back a little bit from revealing those to the world. I think it's possible that I might have had certain attributes personally that might have helped 
us both go forward. But I think I was very much lacking in certain more craft-like aspects of actually filmmaking, certainly, but even storytelling. But more than that, this is a scary place, Hollywood, when you come here alone. I came here, I didn't know anybody. I had no connections. I had no entree. And you need someone who has your back, but mostly you need someone to continue telling you the truth. Because I went to film school and we met in film school. It was the American Film Institute. And it was a very rigorous program and a great program and actually based on a European conservatory model. But at the end of two years, I think you've only begun the learning. I think it's very hard in school and particularly in graduate school to take in all that's coming at you because you're being barraged with information and you're trying to listen and you're trying to internalize. But at the same time, you're trying, you're very anxious and you're very fervent, but you're also very furtive about what can I do and how do I get ahead and how do I do this? And I think those things are in contradiction. And what happens after you get out of school, as you begin to try to put into practice some of those things that they've been talking about, especially as you try and fail, unbelievably important to have somebody there with you or off whom you can bounce ideas and notions or with whom you can analyze the thing that someone else has done, or you can analyze your own failures. And it's a kind of continuing education that happens with a collaborator, that as you grow, he grows and you grow together and you're understanding and you have an observation about something or he does. It was never our intention to work together. Our intention was just as friends. We just hung out and we, you know, spent a lot of time playing video games. I mean, chasing girls, eating, you know, doing what one does. But inevitably we were drawn into saying, you always talk about what you do. And particularly when it's film, you talk about it day and night. We began to begin to try things together. And there began a process in which it never became about my idea or his idea, but it was the creation of a third idea that somehow evolved. And often that idea was a thing that you were a little bit intimidated to say, that you were inhibited because it seemed a little bit outré. It seemed a little more radical. And the other person would say, well, okay, go ahead. Tell me, what is it? What is it? And you'd say, okay, well, it's just maybe this. Well, what if, you know, it's this is stupid, but what about? And you'd say it. And the other person would go, that's it. That's the thing we should do. And you'd say, really? But you would give each other the license to draw from those unexplored and unexpressed parts of yourself. And that thing that then emerged would inevitably the thing that other people would look at and say, oh, I know that. I recognize that. You know, the unexpressed thought, the thought that had been in some sense hidden by any sorts of inhibition or fear of being laughed at or outside the bounds of normal of normalcy because it, so maybe someone hadn't done it. But those secret thoughts are inevitably the ones that audiences identify with. Yeah, we often talk in our work about the octane of truth. You know, when you're at the gas station and they say, do you want low octane, middle octane or high octane? And it's a very interesting set of decisions that one makes because it's actually not hard to know the truth of any circumstance or the truth of any story, but to actually partake of it, to actually come closer to it and still be respectful of the audience's experience. Because obviously 100% octane, we would fall asleep within five minutes because nothing happens. It's about trying to reconcile the compression of drama, the reductionist nature, how things stand in for other things. And in that regard, screenwriting and film 
is much more like poetry than it is like prose. Things stand in for other things. A close-up as someone looks at someone and things change could have been three pages of an introspective narrative in Proust. A little bit of action that takes place in three minutes could have stood in for a war in Tolstoy. And so it becomes trying to find, and some of it is sleight of hand, but it becomes about trying to understand how to use compression so as to give the simulcrum of real life, so as to give an approximation of verisimilitude. And that that's something you learn because audiences do want to feel that they're seeing something that's real because when it's just pow, 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 then it's comic books without exposition, without introspection, without internal sense. So it's trying to find some middle space between those, some liminal space. But I would say that there are certain people who are gifted in a particular way and they know something you can't teach. You can encourage it, you can capture it sometimes, but it is sui generis. It, it, it literally is going to be there and you feel it. It's very much like falling in love, which is impossible to talk about. It's the thing that every poet has ever written about and no one has accurately described. That's what casting is, particularly when it's somebody young, because you sense something and it's not necessarily the attraction to a lover. It's actually a little bit more like seeing one of your children do something remarkable. That, that sense that you have of being present at the creation of something. And that's what it's like. And they walk in a room and you know it. And often, you know, if it was Marshall who's there with me at the time, we'll look at each other and share this look of incredulity to saying, are you seeing this? Is this really happening? Look at this person. This, and it's, it becomes undeniable. And what's amazing is how it's not undeniable all the time and with other people. How can nine people walk in a room and eight of them are just lovely and capable and yet don't touch you? And then one person walks in and you're enraptured. I think I tell the story in the book. I don't know if I do, but it's a favorite story of mine. And it's about Mike Nichols, who was, of course, a god. And Neil Simon always had Mike Nichols doing his, directing his plays. And he would sit in the back of the house and watch the plays being directed. And every day he talked to Nichols afterwards about what the rehearsals were like. And he decided that he wanted to learn to direct. And so on the next set of rehearsals, rather than sit in the back of the house, he sat in the front row and would watch as Nichols would talk to the actors. And he said, well, they talked about where they'd had dinner. They talked about their children. They talked about their affairs and their marital problems. And they talked about the business. He said, I never heard them talking about the play, but the play got better. That to me was a really important story. Very important story about one of the things that a director does that you cannot talk about, and it's ineffable, but it happens. Yeah, I think it's because they forge the human spirit, and that's their material, their medium. And by extension, I think that directors are a kind of, their art form is film, but they are also a kind of teacher. You're teaching each member of the cast and crew. Well, I think you're also trying to impart certain lessons, whether they're moral lessons or whether they are psychological lessons to an audience. I mean, I could get very grand and talk about, you know, what it is to be a storyteller, but a storyteller looks at life and holds up a mirror to life. And what kind of a mirror is that? How distorted, how real, how dark, how colorful. And also we look at the chaos of how much of life is chaotic and we presume to make order out of it. We presume to use stories to try to make sense of an experience the same way that there was somebody in the caves in France 
you know, at the end of the day, when the saber toothed tiger had come and stolen the child and taken him away, told the story and tried to make sense of it to the people in the cave as to what had happened. And I think we as storytellers are doing that all the time about violence, about sex, about drugs, about everything. It's often in retrospect that you can see that and feel that. But it's almost like a little, a little mystery that you unravel, that you then see aspects of the film that you were doing or the story that you were telling that are a reflection of the things that were really foremost in mind at the time. And that is true in many cases for me, but often the least, the most unlikely cases. I mean, I think that the very first thing that Marshall and I did that really succeeded was called Special Bulletin. And it was a, it was almost like a kind of docudrama, almost like a Ponte Corvo, like Battle of Algiers. And, and it was done in this way, but its theme was nuclear proliferation. And I know that at the time that I was deeply, deeply worried about the availability of fissionable materials, and I would even have nightmares about them. And that was perhaps a way of trying to bring to the light something that had been in the shadows of my uh, subconscious. And that's an unlikely personal reflection, a personal investment in that film. But sometimes your personal investment can be just about what one of the characters is going through. And it isn't necessarily about the period or the context, or it could be about your marriage. And yet it's being reflected in a different relationship between two men. It's not always direct. And, and by the way, in the same way, the unconscious is not direct. It, it, you are finding themes in a more Jungian way that are a kind of representation of the inner experience, but they could be represented through monsters or through beauty or through nature or any number of different kind of metaphors. We're all in this together, we as artists. It's hard enough to get anything done. And when you have the opportunity, if it means sacrificing a little bit of your ego, if it means sacrificing some of your money, I think there's an opportunity. When those opportunities are there, you're foolish if you don't take them, if you don't subjugate your own ego, really, to a larger thing, which is doing a piece of work. The unconscious is the best creator. Uh, it always beggars my imagination to see some of those things that we do in dreams. If only we could be as good in real life. I think that for artists, I think there are ways, even small ways, that you can direct your art toward a consciousness of the world. And that consciousness could have as much to do with telling the truth or solving conflicts among people as it does solving the greatest of the world's problems. And I think that's certainly part of it. And I think that's not copying a plea, which is to say that you shouldn't do those things that are more overt, having to do with voting, financing, marching, protesting, any of those more active things, obviously, that you are inclined to do. But I also think that there are ways in art that you just do what you can with what you have. And whether that's writing a letter to a newspaper or an editorial, or if it's finding a way in the context of a more piece about something else that a character is talking about something, or there are ways. I'm not suggesting that art changes the political world, but it does contribute to a rising chorus of voices and consciousness that does create a paradigm shift, ultimately. It just takes a very long time and you're not aware of that curve of history as it's happening. But I can certainly point to, I mean, something that's not trivial, but same-sex marriage that has happened in the world would not have happened had we not been portraying those couples together and normalize them in media. That happened, I think, 
yes, because of the politics and yes, because of the, the, the lobby and everything people have done. But I think that the set of images put out there in the world absolutely contributed. We hope you've enjoyed listening to these highlights. To listen to the latest episodes or learn more about participating in exhibitions or interviews, click on subscribe. Thank you for listening.